tests. Tests. Our lives are filled with them. Tests. They reveal the level and application of our knowledge. Tests. They certify our understanding and practice of a subject of study. They reflect where we are in terms of our education and our experience as well as our readiness to move forward. Tests. A quick show of hands. How many of you like tests? Raise your hand. <laughs> wow. Okay. How many of you don't like tests? There we go. Okay. How many of you are neutral about it? Okay. A couple handful. All right. Tests are a part of our lives. Even more broadly, tests can offer us a reference point for orienting our lives. I mean, and for those of you who raised your hand who don't like tests, maybe you're not thinking broadly because those of you who are on social media, this is like the latest rage or it's been going on for some time, so I'm trying to date myself saying it's the latest rage, but social media is rampant with shorter and longer quizzes. And I can't tell you how many of you I enjoy learning what fictional character you could possibly be or what superhero you're most like or what's your favorite book. Um, but these, these tests also can tell us uh, our best diet, our perfect mate, the ideal place to live. We're surrounded by tests because tests, whether we like them or not, can tell us something about ourselves. They can help us to sort things out when we're confused or uncertain. When new or competing information and experiences cause us to doubt what's true or what's real, we are too, we can put such claims to the test. The reason why I bring this up is because the next part of his, fir in his, uh, of his first letter to the church, John, we started last week, we're just continuing this week, in this next part of his first letter to the church, John is offering us a test. Now, remember, as Pastor John told us last week the context of this letter. John is writing this on the heels of some new, some contradictory, some disputable claims that are being circulated about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so, as John said, he's writing this letter to once and for all clear up what really matters. The true marks of living the resurrection. He, will, he is, if you will, providing us with a point of reference to help us as disciples to see where we stand in relationship to Jesus. So why don't you open up your Bibles to 1 John, and we're going to be diving into chapter 2. 1 John, you can use that Bible that's there in the pew or the Bible that you brought with you. We're going to start in verse 3. John writes, We know we have come to him, we know we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going 
because the darkness has blinded them. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will the will of God lives forever." Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that you and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Test. Three parts to this test. Keep those Bibles open so you can follow along with what I'm trying to show you. Three parts to this test. First, in verses 3 through 5, John puts this forth. He says, Whoever says, I know him, I know Christ, but does not keep his commands is a liar. Part one. Part two of our test. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Verses 6 through 8. Part three of our test, verses nine through 11, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister, he lives in the darkness. Three parts to the test, but if you're really paying attention, if you're thinking about it, actually, we have here three ways of saying the same thing. John is saying the same thing three different ways, and it's this. Believing in Jesus means following Jesus. We just sang a beautiful song where we professed again and again what we believe. John says, believing in Jesus means following Jesus. The mark of a true believer, if you will, is walking the talk. Walking the talk. To break it down even further, the test is the test of obedience. Once again, are we doing what Jesus told us to do? Are we living like Jesus showed us how to live? Are we reflecting the light of Christ, the truth of the person of Jesus before others? This is the test. Now, 
I, I didn't know this was going to happen, but uh, so many of you don't like tests. I want you to know that my hand is among yours. I have tremendous anxiety, or I did when I was a student, about taking a test. I, it was frustrating, and maybe you can relate to this. I, I knew the information, or I knew, was prepared, and yet it was something about in that room, in that moment, when it's like, okay, here's your test, that all of a sudden, I forgot. Or I couldn't find the words, or I couldn't do it. I, have treme- I had tremendous anxiety about tests. And as you hear John's words, perhaps thinking of this as a test, in the way that we often do, the way we think of tests, this is maybe building up some anxiety in you. Is What is John saying here? Is this a pass-fail thing? Because when we think of tests like that, and that's part of where the anxiety comes from, you either pass or you fail. If you pass, you're in. If you fail, you're out. And that's why many of us who think of God, our relationship with God, our situation with God in terms of a test, maybe this is what we're hearing. That's why so many have said to me, I hope God grades on a curve. (laughs) I hope God grades on a curve. Right? I mean, you, you remember that? You had anxiety about a test. Oh, I blew it. And then you find out everybody blew it. And there's a curve, and all of a sudden, a failing grade becomes a B. Who knew? Who knew? And so we look and we say, wow, I gotta be better than that guy, right? I mean, I, I, I figure 50% of the people in this room, I'm gonna score higher, so if God grades on a curve, whew! But if you were listening to John, Pastor John last week, talk about John, I'm not gonna get used to saying that, I'm gonna mess that up. This isn't pass-fail. This isn't pass-fail. The whole opening point of the letter that John so eloquently presented to us last week is obedience is not the avenue of our salvation. Obedience is not the avenue of our salvation. Obedience is the evidence of our salvation. Make no mistake, and John didn't shy away from this last week either, personal righteousness, rightly reflecting the image of God and doing right unto others, is an essential component of our faith and our witness for Christ. But it is not the basis upon which we are saved. Because there is no curve. (laughs) We fail. Beloved, hear this, because I can't go further if you don't get this, if you weren't with us last week or if you were and you forgot. There is no test we must pass in order for God to forgive us. It is not, do not hear John writing right now as saying, the more we obey, the more we are forgiven. And many of us, that's exactly how we think. No, the scriptures are clear, not just John, but the whole of scripture. While we were yet still sinners, not grade A students, not passing students, failures. While we were yet still sinners, Christ took all of our failures upon himself on the cross. God forgave us through Jesus Christ. Now, so you can get your head around what John is trying to say, how he's going from what he said last week in the first chapter, and now swinging into the second chapter, is here's the thing. Such sweeping, no-holes-barred, exhaustive forgiveness by God is powerful. The freedom from it, the freedom to know that you are forgiven. 
You don't have to worry about a curve. The freedom that forgiveness gives us from worry and fear, the freedom that forgiveness gives us from guilt and shame, the freedom that forgiveness gives us from accusation and condemnation, that freedom empowers us to obey, to follow Jesus, to think differently, to feel more broadly, more deeply, to engage life fully. What John is spurring us to reconcile is if we are living out of this freedom, are we living out of this power? Are we living out of this forgiveness? Are we relying on, counting on this grace? Are we taking up residence in the person of Christ? That's what John is asking. So perhaps we shouldn't think of John's words here as a test. Because again, many of us have a certain association with that word. Maybe we ought to think of it more as an inventory. We've all taken inventories, right? They're tests, but they're not tests. They're inventories. The one that comes to my mind is one of the many personality tests. You know what I'm talking about? The Myers-Briggs indicator. Are you an INFJ or an EFP, whatever, right? There's all kinds of inventories like these that are not tests per se as much as they are designed to give us an indication of how we are wired, of what motivates and drives us. I, uh, as you know, some of you have benefited from it, I do premarital and marital counseling. And whenever I start premarital and marital counseling, I, I say to the couple, I'd like you to take an inventory. And they immediately go, you want us to take a test? <laughs> why, why, why? And especially for premarital couples, they don't want to take a test, man. They don't want to come back and hear, you guys don't belong together. <laughs> but it's not a test. It's an inventory. It's an inventory that I give them where they each individually answer questions. And those questions are designed to give them a sense of how they're wired as a couple. What makes them tick? What brings them together? Where are the tensions in their relationship? And every time couples will come in, and, did we pass? It's not a test. It's an inventory. And so think of what John is saying here as an inventory. Because inventories, rather than focusing on the pass or fail, inventories can better focus and calibrate us when we lose sight of what's important. Inventories, in other words, show how close to the mark we are. And that's a really helpful way of thinking of it, showing us how close to the mark we are. Because if you've never heard this before, or you, maybe you've heard it and you don't remember, the Greek word for sin, harmatia, literally means to miss the mark. Sin is missing the mark. And so John is giving us an inventory for us to see how close to the mark we are. John's purpose for us, and maybe you've heard it in this parlance, is for us to take a personal inventory. He's offering us a measure for our growth. How have we grown? How are we growing? How are we stunted? And specifically that growth is in terms of our relationship to Christ. So again, if you have those Bibles open, verse 3, John writes very intentionally, we know we have come to know him. We know we have come to know him. That first know in that sentence is in the present tense in Greece, in Greek. The present tense. It indicates not a one-time insight or deposit of information, but John is talking about progressive knowledge that's gained by experience. It's about past revelation with present and ongoing consequences. We know, we're continuing to know, we have come to know him. 
In other words, what John has in mind is more, this is so important, what he has in mind is more than the intellectual apprehension of facts or truths. John isn't interested in what we know. His focus is on whom we know. For John, truth is a person, a relationship with Jesus. Our forgiveness is rooted in a relationship. Think about what Pastor John preached about in the first chapter of this letter. Our forgiveness is rooted in a relationship. It is offered and assured to us, this forgiveness, not through a certificate of atonement. It is not by our membership in some salvation club. No, as John specifically writes at the end of that chapter, first chapter, is our forgiveness is offered through an advocate, a relationship. We know we have come to know him. That second no in that sentence in verse 3 is in the perfect tense, a change in tenses. And what John is getting at by repeating the word no and changing the tense, this second no is about real, genuine, and complete knowledge. There is this progressive knowledge gained by experience so that we can come into a full and complete knowledge. The fullness of a relationship. Again, not intellectual understanding. Full and complete knowledge of who Christ is. For John, therefore, the lack of truth that comes by way of disobedience, when we mess up, when we disobey, the lack of truth that results isn't about missing the point of something. Oh, oh, I I missed the point. No, it's deeper than that. For John, when we disobey, the lack of truth that results is about becoming disconnected from the relationship. Disconnected from the presence, the person of Christ. It's not just you got one wrong. It's you're disconnected, you're missing, you're letting go of the person, the presence of Christ. And that's why he goes on, verse six. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. The word that's translated here into three words in English, live in him, is actually the word abide. And in fact, it's so important to John, it's used 10 times in these verses that we've read today. Abide, abide, abide. Live in him, abide. Abide means to remain, to live, to dwell. It implies, building upon what we've just seen, a close, intimate, and open relationship. In other words, true believers follow. True believers pattern their lives after Jesus. They live, as John writes, like Jesus. How did Jesus live? Let's think for a second. How did Jesus live? He lived as a person of peace and self-control. He lived in humility before God, and he lived with compassion for others. He lived standing up for others and welcoming all. This is what John is invoking when he says, if we say we live in him, we must live like him. Imitation, we like to say, is the sincerest form of flattery. Imitate Jesus. But what John is invoking here, beloved, is more than flattery. To live in him, to live in Christ, is more than just imitation or copying Jesus. Bigger, it's not just imitating or copying Jesus. What John is getting at is if we say we live in him, we must live like him. It's that word abide. What John is getting at is not just imitating or copying Jesus, but it's to dwell in Christ. To submit to Christ's dwelling in us. 
This is the deeper mystery of our faith. We proclaim, we celebrate at Pentecost that Christ lives in us. And John is invoking, if we say we live in him, then we must live like him, which means Jesus, who is in us, must be in charge. Jesus must come out. Jesus, the dwelling of Christ, must be fruitful in us. And that's why John then goes on here, and he references, as he puts it, not a new command, but an old one. Not a new one, but an oldie, but a goodie. He's invoking the greatest commandment of all. If you're, if you're, if you're savvy on this book, you know what John's talking about without him having to even say it. He's talking about the greatest commandment of all. And this commandment goes all the way back to the beginning. You probably remember it in the Gospels where someone says, Jesus, how do you sum up all of the commands? And Jesus says, that's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. It's not new. John is saying it's not new because Jesus, when he said it, it wasn't new. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. It goes all the way back, we could even argue, to the Garden of Eden. This is it. You want to live, you want to dwell in God, love God with everything you have, and love each other the way that God loves you. The newness of this command is found in the fresh perspective. When John then says, it's not a new command, but it is a new command. What he means is, the newness of this command is found in the fresh perspective, the clearer and fuller revelation that the life of Jesus brought to this commandment. And this brings us back just a couple of weeks ago to Monday Thursday. It's called Monday Thursday, New Command Thursday, when Jesus in that upper room does something shocking and scandalous. He strips down and washes the feet of his disciples and turns and says, I give you a new command. And it's not new. He says, I'm giving you a new, a fresh understanding of something that's very, very old. Love each other as I have loved you. I am your master, you are my servants, and yet I as the master am serving you as servants, therefore you should serve each other. This is what John is tapping into. To live like Jesus is to love like Jesus. It's to yield to Christ dwelling in you. And this is so important why it has to be Christ is because Jesus is the quintessential example. He is the supreme demonstration. He is the greatest definition of what love is, of what love looks like. And man, I want to keep going here, but we're going to get to love later on in this letter again. So there's going to be more on love later. But take away just what John gives us here in chapter 2. And it's a good one. The clearest manifestation of being in that inexhaustible love of God dwelling in Christ is in refusing to hate. Verse 9. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister lives in darkness. Again, John Pastor John brought this out in the very beginning of the letter, this metaphor of light. It's one John likes a lot. The light is Christ, the light of Christ, the light that is Jesus. To be in the light is once again to reflect Jesus in what we say and do, how we think and act, how we spend our time and money, how we treat others. And what I want you to see that John doesn't shy away from declaring, just like Jesus, is the command to love is absolute. We are called to love our brothers and sisters like Jesus. This is not just love directed at fellow believers. It is directed at all who are created in the image of God. To really bring this home, we are to love the unlovely. To be in the light is to shine like Jesus. And the love 
of Christ, the love that is Jesus shines brightly. What do we see again and again in the Gospels? Jesus loves all, but the brightness of the love of Christ is in loving those who are considered by everyone else unlovable. And that's why John writes and says, this command to love is absolute. This epitomizes what it means to, to dwell in Christ. And the antithesis, hatred brings darkness. John says this hatred that we can be fall victim to brings such darkness, it can get so dark you're bound to get lost in it. And how many of us can raise our hands and say that is so true? How many of us in our hatreds have been, maybe are now, lost in all that anger? Lost in all that resentment, consumed by bitterness? My friends, when John says, don't hate, really hear this. Hatred is not so much about how we feel. We all, all of a sudden, can have that feeling of anger, resentment, or bitterness. John's not talking specifically about how we feel. That just comes upon us. What John is tapping into is something much more deeper, much more significant. It's about our intentions and our actions. When John says, if we walk in the light, you don't hate your brother or sister, he's not saying you're not always going to feel something. He's saying you are not going to act you're not going to give license to. You're not going to indulge those feelings. What John is getting at here is what we do with those feelings. And that's why he goes on to say that our hatred becomes a stumbling block. He describes it. He says that hatred becomes a stumbling block. It becomes a stumbling block rather than a stepping stone for others to come to Christ. Hear the contrast. Hatred becomes makes us a stumbling block rather than a stepping stone. That's what we're created to be for others to come to Christ. Why is that? Because all of our cynicism, all of our animosity becomes treacherous for others. It causes them to stumble. It causes them to leave the church. It causes them to reject the word. It causes them to ignore the spirit. And many of us are living compartmentalized lives where we're here on church and we're praising Jesus and we love God and it's all about grace and peace and forgiveness. But turn on your car radio, listen to the conversation in your house, and there's a lot of hatred. I mentioned this two weeks ago and I'm going to say it again. You show it to me on Facebook. Why? And I see sometimes some of the things that you post or repost, and I think, what are you saying at home? What are you saying in the workplace? What are you exuding? And all of us right now, we see that anger may start to come. We got a reason to be cynical. We got a reason to be upset. We're mad as hell. John says, no. Not that you can't feel it, but John says, what do you do with that feeling? Are you submitting that to Christ? Are you letting Christ turn that into love? Or are you saying, no, I want to indulge it. I like it. I want to unleash it. Because that's what John is talking about here. The purpose of this inventory that John gives us in the first part of this second chapter is to invoke our confession. Again, Pastor John tapped into that at the beginning of the letter, that the revelation of Christ provokes our confession, and John, once again, is seeking to have us in this inventory to confess ourselves before God. But here's the part, and it wasn't, we weren't there yet, that Pastor John left off with, because John, in writing this letter, hadn't gotten to. Confession's great. Confession is necessary. But confession is meaningless without repentance. The gift of forgiveness, in other words does not leave us unchallenged or unchanged. 
And this isn't a bait and switch on last week, but last week we all confessed. We can come clean. We can be honest because we have forgiveness in Christ. That is all true. But God doesn't say, okay, I forgive you, so just go back to being the way you were before. That's <laughs> all good. I love you. No, God says the whole point of you coming clean, like a parent coming before the child is, so you can learn to live differently. So you can be improved, bettered. Confession must be followed by repentance. We are set free by that forgiveness in order to be transformed, to become our true selves. Without repentance, confession is just talk. How many of you have said, I'm sorry? More times than you can even remember. Raise your hand. How many times have you said, I'm sorry? How many times did you follow it up with something? How many of you learned, maybe in your life, I did, that just the go-to thing to say when you did something wrong is, I'm sorry. And that just kind of, that covers it. I'm sorry. And that's it. That's where it stops. But without repentance, confession is just talk. Without repentance, we get stuck on repeat. How many of you have said, I'm sorry, for the same thing multiple times? And is there a correlation that your sorry keeps coming up because nothing follows that sorry? How many of you are living in the vicious cycle of, oops, I did it again? All respect to Britney Spears. Oops, I did it again. This relationship, this power that Christ offers us is so that we can come clean, confess. You don't have to be afraid. Don't hold anything back. But you're going to be changed. You're going to be transformed. And I, again, I know that this is where I go. I want to hit this one more time. It's not what I'm saying when I talk about repentance. Please hear this. It's not that we have to change ourselves. It's not that you have to change yourself. That's how we operate apart from God. And that's the reason why we get stuck in, oops, I did it again. I can't change me. You can't change who you are on your own. Repentance isn't. Don't hear me when I say this. And too many, that's why we, don't, we shy away from repentance. We've been taught the wrong thing. Repentance isn't, hey, go study harder, practice, come back, and retest. And that's what many of us think it is. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to go study the word more. I'm going to practice more. And I'm going to come back. And how did I do? Oh, I did it again. Oh, okay. That's not repentance. Repentance. Biblical repentance is remembering and relying on the advocate, the coach you have in your corner, who seeks, who pursues you to train you, to encourage you and empower you to be changed. That is subtle, but it's so significant. This isn't John saying, hey, go, pull yourself up, figure it out. No, John is saying, yes, confess. Come clean, but repent, utilize, make use of, engage that relationship with your advocate, your coach who wants to empower you, who wants to encourage you. Remember, my friends, it is the love behind our forgiveness that brings our salvation and enables our obedience. It brings our salvation and then it enables our obedience. Repentance, when we understand it, how it happens Repentance, and this is where John goes next, begins with a no. That's also why we shy away from repentance. How many of us believe we can say yes to everything? How many of us try? 
No, repentance begins with a no. We have to say no in order to say yes. The offer, the assurance of forgiveness that we celebrate, that is ours, that is, gives us great freedom, that offer, that assurance of forgiveness. Do you ever think about this? The very fact that we are forgiven reveals that certain thoughts, certain words, certain deeds are not okay. You have to say no. Because if we didn't ever have to say no, there'd be no need for forgiveness, right? If everything's okay, then there's nothing to ask for forgiveness for. What are we celebrating? But the very idea that we're like, oh, we're forgiven, implies there's stuff we need to say no to. And that's where, when we get into this deeper understanding of the actual, the orientation of repentance, confession is coming clean, but repentance is about turning around. Because saying no implies that there's, we can go the wrong way. Saying no implies we can be doing the wrong thing. So repentance is this recognition that no means getting turned around, being reoriented. Once again, confession is saying, I'm sorry. With your children, maybe you as a child, maybe with someone else, maybe you've had that experience where something has gone wrong, that's, has gone wrong and that person says, I'm sorry. How many of you have ever said, for what? What are you sorry for? What? And how many of you have ever been that child or had a child who goes, I don't know. <laughs> Just sorry. Repentance begins with completing that sentence. I'm sorry. For what? Do we even know? Do we even realize? Do we even remember what we're sorry for? Why we confess? Why forgiveness matters? John gives us, and then as this chapter goes on, two places to start in terms of orienting our repentance. If you say, I'm sorry, and you're like, I don't know what I'm sorry for, here's two things John says that are two big distractions, two big dead ends that we need to watch out for and we need to turn away from, reorient ourselves from. What are they? The first one, verses 15 through 17. John says, you're going in the wrong direction if you're loving the world instead of loving Jesus. You're going in the wrong direction if you're loving the world instead of loving Jesus. Important clarification. The word for world that John uses here implies everything that opposes Christ and his kingdom work on earth. Really important you hear that because the Bible's clear. The world as God created it is good. What John is tapping into is the way the world lives apart from or in rebellion to God. That's what he's getting into. And that, the Bible consistently says, whenever the world, the way of the world is, in a, is apart from God or in rebellion to God, that's not good. So in other words, this idea of turning away from loving the world means be careful of allowing your appetites, your ambitions, and your conduct to be fashioned by values opposed to Christ and his kingdom. And in case we're like, well, what would those be? John tells us. John breaks it down, how we fall in love with the way of the world. He says, be careful of three things. Three signs you're going in the wrong direction. The first is having a lust for the flesh. And what does that mean? It means having, being dominated by our senses, being so dominated by our senses that we have no regard for the will of God. In other words, it's letting our appetites overtake us. John Calvin, a great theologian, put it this way, much of our flesh... Our senses craves its own convenience. It's when your creature comforts, your convenience, your appetites get so big, 
so consuming, great word, that God is a distant second. Interesting, two places in the Bible where this comes out, just to help you appreciate first the lust for the flesh. Go back to Eden. Go back to the devil in the garden with Eve. Do you remember the first thing that Eve says that, uh, sorry, the, de- the, the devil says to Eve in the garden when he tempts her to eat from the tree, he says, it's good for food. Get it? It's good for food. He's speaking to her appetite, the lust of the flesh. Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness, remember his first temptation with the devil? What does the devil say? You're hungry, right? Turn these stones to bread. Satisfy your appetites. John says, You're heading in the wrong direction if your lust for the flesh eclipses your relationship with God. Second, he says your lust of the eyes. What's the difference between the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes? This is about materialism. It's not so much about consuming as much as it is that I must have it. I have to have it. You ever had someone tell you your eyes are bigger than your appetite? Your eyes are bigger than your stomach? It's that idea. You know where this gets invoked is Costco. (laughs) Right? I could use that. Hey, look, they have the new Keurig. We have a Keurig, but that's a better one. I want that one. I like vitamins. I need six months worth of vitamins. Yeah. Your eyes see it and you want it. It's less about appetite. I really want to make this clear. It's separation. It's more about your ambition. Let me go back to that Keurig thing, right? Why do you want to have the new Keurig? So I can say, I've got the new one. Oh, you've got the old one. That's cool. Mine makes a whole carafe of coffee now. Did you know that? (laughs) And again, back to the beginning and back to Jesus. We see this in Scripture. Go back to Eden again. First time it was appealing to the appetite. Oh, it's good for food, the snake says. But then he says, and it's pleasing to the eyes. Jesus tempted in the wilderness. Satan says, turn these stones to bread. Feed your appetite. That doesn't work. So Satan says to Jesus, hey, you know what? Look at all, look at all the kingdoms of the world. They can all be yours. Just bow down to me and I'll give it all to you. Going the wrong way if the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes eclipses our relationship with God. And the alternative to lust and a great definition for lust An abused word in our culture. Lust is disordered desire. The alternative to lust is to desire God's will for the world instead of the will of our appetites and our ambitions. And it's when our appetites and our ambitions line up with God's will, they're fine. There's nothing wrong with appetite. There's nothing wrong with ambition if it's lined up with God's will for the world. When it's not, that's what John's talking about. But he gives us a third Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and he says the pride of life. And again, this is a tough one because we use pride in a positive way. John is getting at pride in the sense of this arrogant spirit of self-sufficiency. Pride in the sense that we want recognition for ourselves. We want status for ourselves. We want advantage for ourselves. It's pride in oneself versus pride in the character of God. It's that small part of ourselves that, yes, I give all glory to you, Jesus, but I saved this little piece just for me. It's that part of you that stands before God and says, God, you are great, you are God, God, you are good, but I deserve this. And again, back to Eden, right? Good for food, pleasing to the eyes. Where's the pride come in? Satan said, this will make you what? Wise. You won't die. 
but you'll be wise like God. And what is the last temptation the devil gives to Jesus in the wilderness first? Feed your appetites. Look at your ambitions, all the kingdoms of the world. But then the last one is, all right, Jesus, up at the top of the temple, throw yourself down. Show them what you got. Because surely God's not going to let you fall. My friends, all these things can be summarized this way, and we're going to come back to this. We are what we love. We are what we love. Love is a desire for and a willingness to commit to something. That's what love is. A desire for and a willingness to commit something. Commit to something. If you want to know what you love, your desire and your commitments. Look at your desire and your commitments. And if you want to know where you're, what you love, your de- what you desire and what you commit to is where your time and your resources go. Where you give your time and where you give your resources feeds your desires and meets your commitments. And that reveals what you love. There's no way around it. No debate. It is. You can debate whether it should be what you love, but that's how it works. And John says, you love the world, the ways of the world, you're going the wrong way. Augustine, St. Augustine puts it like this. I've always loved this quote. I've been waiting to use it. This is how Augustine says what loving the world looks like. I love this. He says, it's loving the engagement ring from your lover but caring nothing for the one who gave it to you. How many of us wear that ring of forgiveness, of salvation, of grace? We show it off, but it doesn't translate into any kind of affection or love for the one who gave it to us. There's other jewelry we're more taken with. Our love affair with the world will never end unless we discover something, someone, greater to love than the world. And we have to be careful in this regard because this leads to the second thing John says to be careful of that we may need to repent of. And that's when he talks in verses 18 through 27 to close out this portion of the letter. He talks about, okay, we can go the wrong way by loving the ways of the world, but we can also go the wrong way if we're following the wrong leader. And this is where John brings up antichrists. John addresses people called antichrists. And it's interesting because many people believe, and I'm not debating this belief, that the antichrist is an individual identified in the book of Revelation. But you want to know something? A little bit of trivia. It's only in John's letters that the word appears. Don't find it in Revelation. And the term simply means opposite of Christ. Antichrist is opposite of Christ. Interesting, if you have your Bible open, notice how John reorients the community as he writes this letter from perceiving the Antichrist in the singular tense to thinking in the plural. He talks about the Antichrist and says there's many Antichrists. And Jesus himself said that many false teachers and leaders would come seeking to lead believers in the wrong direction. Jesus says this to his disciples. He says they're going to lead you towards sin and death and away from forgiveness and life in Christ. Now, when we hear John say, be careful of antichrist, wrong leaders, we tend to think of false teaching in terms of doctrine. That's kind of sort of been, become our tradition in the church. We think of false teaching in terms of doctrine, beliefs. Anyone who teaches and denies the reality of sin and our need for forgiveness is a false teacher. Anyone who teaches that there's a limit to the reach and accessibility of God's forgiveness is a false teacher. Any teaching that suggests we can earn or achieve our forgiveness, our salvation apart from Jesus, apart from the grace of Christ, is a false teacher. All of these are beliefs, and they are most certainly true. And in John's context, 
On the one hand, he's talking about a doctrinal theological issue. There's debate in the community about the divinity of Jesus. Was Jesus really God? And I'm not going to get into that now because it'll come up again later. But I want to make this more practical. False teaching can be about doctrine. It often is. But understand something. False teaching can also have to do with the nature of our relationship with Jesus. What I'm saying to you is the false teaching of antichrists is not just about what we believe. We are following an antichrist anytime we continue to live contrary to the character and person of Jesus. We don't think that way, but that applies. We are following an antichrist anytime we continually live contrary to the character and person of Jesus. Anytime we repeatedly deny our Lord in what we say or do, we are reflecting false teaching not only about Jesus, but we are actually misrepresenting the actual person of Christ. It's important to note that when John writes about being careful of antichrists, John is warning us against counterfeit Christianity. And why that's so important is because, as you know, a counterfeit implies the existence of of a real thing, right? A hint of truth. Counterfeit bills work because they look really, really close to the real thing. The more counterfeit they are, the harder they are to tell they're counterfeit. What I'm getting at is false teachers don't teach the complete opposite of what Jesus taught. They don't call us to go 180 degrees in the other direction of following Christ. That's not how this works. No, antichrists offer a hint of truth and then purpose to gradually modify the boundaries, to change the definitions, to move us off center. Antichrists look to slightly change the story of the gospel. And they, why do they do this? They look to slightly change the story of the gospel to better appeal to a world based on free choices, based on my rights, based on my privacy. I'm sort of working this out an example for you right now. False teachers will give us permission to cut ourselves off from undesirables. People we don't want to associate with and call our neighbor. And yet, John says right here, and he's not alone, anytime we repeatedly refuse to acknowledge and help our neighbor, the least of these, whether they're across the street or lying on the side of the road or seeking refuge from harm, we are denying the Father and the Son. Now it's at home. Antichrists purpose to skew the definition of love and the application of forgiveness. And why do they skew the definition of love? And why do they sort of narrow the application of forgiveness? Because they want to enrapture a world that views love as being about attraction and desire. They want to woo a world that demands that forgiveness be asked for and earned. That doesn't want to pardon the unforgivable, the unrepentant. But again, John makes it clear here, and the scriptures echo this, anytime we persist in refusing as we are lo- to love as we are loved, anytime we persist in loving as we are loved, to forgive as we have been forgiven, whether it is a prodigal who comes home, a debtor who owes us much, or even our enemy who seeks to take us out to nail us to the cross, whenever we refuse to love as we are loved, to forgive as we have been forgiven. We are denying the Father and the Son. 
Let us talk about doctrine. Amen. But let us also talk about practice. There can be no denial about the truth of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We encounter, my friends, we are pursued, we are saved, we follow a good, just, forgiving, incarnate, loving, sacrificial, redeeming, and serving God revealed fully in Jesus Christ and continually abiding in us through the Holy Spirit. And anyone who teaches about or represents God as anything less is an antichrist, a false teacher, a counterfeit, and not someone we should be following. And I'm going to say this to you, and you're going to want to talk to me, and maybe I'll have this conversation. Stop looking for the antichrists outside of the church. Stop looking outside the church. So the focus of our repentance, as John says it, turning away from our love of the world and turning away from our adherence to counterfeit Christians or counterfeit Christs. How do you recognize and avoid those counterfeits? John tells us. How do you recognize those counterfeits? How do you know you're going in the wrong direction? Because they deny Jesus. They refuse to fully submit and depend and rely on Christ. John breaks it down, and it's a little bit more complex, but I'm going to break it down for you. John says, first you have the word. John says, you know the truth. How do you recognize what's counterfeit? How do you know you're going in the wrong direction? John says again and again, you have the word. You know the truth. Counterfeits bend or deny the truth. They lie. You have the word. John goes on and says, you have the spirit. You have the anointing. Counterfeits try to fill us with other spirits. Counterfeits, if you read John carefully, imply we need to be taught or have knowledge to receive the Spirit. Did the disciples have some brilliant knowledge to receive the Holy Spirit on Pentecost? No. The Spirit comes on who he wills. You already have the Spirit, John says. Anyone's trying to teach you you need to do something to receive the Spirit or other spirits, that's not God. You have the word, you know the truth, so you can recognize lies. You have the anointing, you have the spirit, so you don't need to be filled with any other spirit. And thirdly, John says, you have the body. The body. Counterfeits. Did you catch this, John says? Seek to divide the body, to leave and separate from the fellowship. It's not a coincidence that many of the cults that we know that end tragically started in the church. They branch off. And I'm not wanting you to freak out now if you see people leaving Grace or some other church. Oh, no, this isn't just about the local church. It's about the wider church. That's why we sang the creed. This is what we believe. It's when all of a sudden over the whole global church, someone is separating. They're completely separating from what we have understood for centuries. This is who the person of Christ is. This is the character of Christ. This is what God's kingdom looks like. When we branch off from that, we are separating from the body. So what are you left with to do? To take an inventory today. When I give that, that inventory to couples for premarital or marital counseling, when they get past that, it's not a test. The point of an inventory is it reveals our strengths in order to support our weaknesses, to build, to grow our weaknesses. So what I'm asking you to do in light of what's been shared, in light of the things that we can be weary of, loving the world, following the wrong leader, the tools that we have, the word, the spirit, the body. Identify your strengths today. And what I mean by that is, where is the positive growth in your life happening by the grace of God? Identify your weaknesses. Where are the places of resistance where you are lacking growth because you are still 
tugging against the will of God? Where are you loving the world? Where are you following the wrong leader? Trying to put things together that don't fit together. And it's in identifying that positive growth that's happening in us by the grace of God and at the same time identifying those places of resistance and lack thereof that we allow the strength of Christ in us to address the weaknesses. That's it. That's the inventory. Look at the work that God is doing. Celebrate, identify the positive, and then get, unleash that positive to deal with the negative. Let go. So to break this down, are you in the word? Are you a person of the word? Do you read your Bible? Do you know your Bible? Do you engage it not just as facts, but in terms of a relationship? If you do, then that's a place of strength you can draw from to maybe help you fully, more fully engage the Spirit. The Spirit is real. The Spirit moves us. The Spirit fills us. I know we like to keep the Spirit in a closet. I know sometimes we get embarrassed by it, but the Spirit moves and works in us. Are you in step with the Spirit? Maybe that's not an issue for you. Maybe you're very much comfortable with, you're familiar with the person of Christ's spirit, working in you, guiding your thoughts, your mind, filling you at times. That's not an issue, but maybe this is. Maybe you don't have a lot of understanding of Christ through the word, as the word made flesh, of, of the fullness of the Bible, how it's not one God in the Old Testament and a different God in the New Testament. It's all the same God. Maybe you're great. Maybe you're well-versed in the word. Maybe you're filled with the spirit, but maybe a place where you're disconnected is the body. Are you connected to the body? Are you coming out of the pew? Are you getting to know the people that are around you? Sharing your life, sharing your testimony, and letting them get to know you. And my friends, it's all three together. That's the, that's the synergy. It's word, spirit, and body. It's not one or two or one or two and the, not the other. It's all three together. Outwardly expressed, outwardly expressed through our worship and our service. I am way long today. Okay. Okay, I'm confessing I'm way long, so don't send me any cards or any notes. I'm sorry for going long. Oh, I didn't say it won't happen again. I told you I can't change. I'm going to ask God to change me, but we may be here a while. I uh, teach, um, I've taught in a couple of different contexts, but I, I, I always remember a, a question that students will ask. It comes up a lot, and maybe this kind of brings it all together. You know, you're, you're about to teach something, and students will say this question. Is this something we just need to memorize, or do we have to actually understand this? <laughs> it's an honest question. Think about it. Is this something we just need to memorize, you know, brain dump, boop, boop, bonk, or do we actually have to understand it? Take that question and relate it to what John's just written. Is this something that we just need to memorize, or do we actually have to understand it? Jesus doesn't want you. Jesus didn't die for you, resurrected for us, so that we could just memorize a bunch of facts, a bunch of scriptures, a bunch of liturgies, we need to understand, that's what Christ desires for us, is to understand how to live with Jesus, to live in Christ, to live like Jesus, to be transformed into who we were created to be. My friends, profession of faith does not mean possession of faith. Even a broken clock 
tells the correct time twice every 24 hours. <laughs> However, a synced clock tells the correct time regularly. Are we in sync with Jesus? Are we living out of the freedom of that forgiveness? Are we generously sharing the love that has been poured out for us in Christ? Are we walking the talk of the gospel? The fruit of our salvation in Christ is born not simply from a profession of belief, but from a commitment to obedience. And obedience is not a checklist of rules. It's an ongoing response to a living God. It's being in relationship with Jesus. As you take that inventory this morning, this week, maybe use this Kairos card, let me just ask you this. Who's your go-to person? Maybe it's as simple as this question. Who's your go-to person? You know what I mean? Your go-to person. When everything falls apart, when all of a sudden you're stressed, when all of a sudden you don't, you come to that breaking point, who's your go-to person? Your go-to source for information, for affirmation, for wisdom and security. Is it yourself? Do you look within? Is it someone who's flesh and blood just like you? Beloved, our go-to person is Jesus. Jesus is the source for our information. Jesus is the source for our affirmation, our wisdom, our security. Through word, by the Spirit, and through the body, he is our go-to person. So let us turn to him. Let us follow him. Let us live in him as he lives in us. Let us reflect the truth of Christ to each other. Amen.